Welcome to Block Stars, Ripple's podcast that features leaders in crypto and blockchain to discuss the basics of these technologies, the current landscape, and the real-world problems being solved. I'm your host, Ripple CTO David Schwartz. I'm joined today with Ripple's Vice President, Head of Global Institutional Markets, Brianne Madigan, to discuss crypto markets. Great to have you on our episode, Brianne. Likewise. A pleasure to be here, David. Uh, almost a year I've been at Ripple now, so enjoying it. Yeah, you, you know, you're in a unique position to be one of the experts that has experience in both traditional and digital asset markets. What are, what are the similarities and differences that I, that you think people should understand about those two markets? Yeah, so I would say in terms of similarities, in general, investor demand is really driven by speculation, so similar to traditional finance. And we see a lot of interest in yield-based products. So you will notice over the last 12 to 18 months, a lot of uh, interest in things like staking and lending are really taking off. And I think that's really the core philosophy as in traditional finance of how do I make my money work for me? How do I generate income off existing holdings? Um, And so there are a lot of similarities. But there also are a lot of differences. So I think about the development in crypto, and it was sort of the reverse of of the development of traditional markets. And what I mean by that is retail investors really created crypto, and then slowly uh, institutional investors are coming in. So it was kind of backwards in that way. And also in crypto, we've seen the development of things like leveraged derivatives before things like index funds and margin trading. So I think the ecosystems have been developed in a reverse order. And those are the key differences. Do you think that's because of the unique attributes of crypto? Or do you think that's just because people had could choose from everything because everything had already been done? Or what, what do you think accounts for that? I think the unique attributes of crypto, crypto was really born from a place of almost, I hate to say anarchist, but it was sort of the anti-government revolution. You know, I can't really trust the government because they just keep printing money. And today this message is more important than ever. I mean, we're in the midst of this COVID pandemic, you know, the likes of which we've never seen before. And really, this is a perfect test point to say, this is why crypto was created, right? I mean, we're seeing record amounts of stimulus being pumped in, crazy inflation risk. And now you see things like Paul Tudor Jones coming in and saying, okay, finally, big macro investors who historically were very anti are saying there really is no other asset that represents an alternative to as an inflation hedge that does this better than Bitcoin as an example. And so I I think that's why uh, it was more of a retail driven phenomenon than core institutional investor phenomenon. So given those sort of, I'll say libertarian is a little more watered down, is that given those libertarian roots, the sort of anti-institutions, the people seize control, does it seem odd that you're taking that to institutions? No, you know, I think I, I, I see what you're saying. It could be at odds. But I think increasingly more and more people are becoming cynical of the traditional financial institutions and the way that they run business, the excessive fees. And I think increasingly as individuals become smarter about managing their money and managing those risks, they want to take control of their assets and they want to have the opportunity to make independent investment decisions. And I think crypto is one example of how people are sort are taking back control of their finances, not needing to trust the government in order to transact between individuals or in between counterparties. So, Brianne, 
What's the problem with payments today that institutions are looking at digital assets to solve? There are a number of problems with the payments flow today with traditional banks. The biggest one is that banks need to send money to the destination many days in advance. And the reason for that is it has to go through a series of accounts. There are Nostro accounts, there are Vostro accounts. And without getting into too much detail, basically there are many different intermediaries along the life cycle of the payment flow from the originating sender to the destination receiver. And not only does that add time to the process, but that adds a lot of fees to the process. And people are very frustrated that they can you know, send an email and send information in milliseconds across the world, but they still can't send value that way. In fact, I think it's shocking that money is sort of the last to move uh, the way other things have moved, right? So like information moves rapidly. I think, you know, when Ripple was set up, it was all around this internet of value concept. And it is shocking to most people when you ask about how is it possible that we still take multiple days and pay multiple percentage points and fees to send money from one country to another when I can send a message instantaneously. And so what our on-demand liquidity platform really does to help solve that problem is we leverage a digital asset as that bridge currency between the originating bank sender. Say, Say the originating bank wants to send US dollars into Mexico and be converted into Mexican pesos. We take those US dollars and we swap them into XRP and that is sent instantaneously cross-border. And then that XRP is instantaneously swapped into Mexican pesos. And so in the legacy system, what would take a series of days and cost three, five percent today can be done instantaneously and cost fractions of a penny by using the on-demand liquidity product, leveraging the digital asset XRP. So let's let's get give our listeners some more information about what what the problem is and how global markets work. Can you give them a little bit of an understanding of what liquidity is, why that helps global markets, what drives market stability, that kind of thing? Yeah, sure. So I think about liquidity really very simply, and it's the ease with which you can move an asset and convert it into ready cash without affecting its market price effectively. And there are a number of attributes to liquidity, probably four primary attributes. So I think of simply tightness. I I call it tightness. Um, And basically, that's the concept of low transaction costs between buys and sells. And the way you might measure that is looking at bid-ask spreads on a given exchange. You want them to be tight and low or trading fees. The second key attribute of liquidity that I look at is a sort of immediacy or resiliency. And, and, and that's really sort of the speed at which new order new orders can kind of correct, say, imbalances or when a market has a shock. And so the metric that I use to indicate, you know, the strength of, or resiliency of a given asset or market is really the, the daily range that a, that a given asset or asset class trades in. The third, I think, is really breadth. And the way I think about breadth is the number of trading pairs and the number of instruments that you have available to easily move into and out of a position. So as you have more accessibility and instruments to trade the asset, you increase the breadth of a, of a given asset's um, liquidity. And I'd say the fourth 
uh, key attribute of liquidity is depth. And that's really, you know, taking a look at an order book and seeing, is there an abundance of orders either actually listed or easily uncovered, both above and below where the most recent discoverable traded price was. So really looking at order book depth and overall traded volumes. And when you see assets that have that depth, that have great breadth, they have immediacy, resiliency, and they have this tightness, they tend to trade with greater frequency and investors have an easier time getting over the hurdle of taking uh, liquidity risk to to trade into the asset. So when you're talking about the utility of an asset, the ability of, to use it for something, it seems pretty self-evident that improved liquidity would improve utility because it reduces the costs and risks. So that if the, if the benefits are sort of constant and you can reduce the costs and risks, then relative to the costs, the benefits are more pronounced. Absolutely. You know, I think one huge differentiating factor for XRP is that we are looking at solving a real world problem leveraging XRP, which is, you know, how do we get assets from one country to another without having to go through the legacy Nostro Vostro account system? And that is a complete game changer. We've never had the availability to send money cross border as rapidly as we can leveraging our on-demand liquidity platform, what we call ODL. Uh, And that to me represents real utility for the use case of digital assets. And that that has really been, I think, one of the bigger hurdles for institutional adoption. People say, okay, I kind of get this is interesting Bitcoin store of value. Sure. But why do I need digital assets? What's the real use case that makes me want to hold them? And I think that's where we are really differentiated as a company in building products that leverage XRP and, and really demonstrate core utility of the value of introducing digital assets into a broken system, which is cross-border payments today. I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk at least a little bit about current events. So it's May 2020. We just had the Bitcoin halvening. And of course, we're in the midst of a global pandemic, COVID-19. We've seen market volatility. I guess there's a couple of different questions I could ask you, but I'll I'll ask you one about the sort of safe haven asset narrative, the idea that digital assets like cryptocurrencies shouldn't correlate with traditional markets. And some people might have thought that a sort of crisis in traditional markets would be very good for cryptocurrencies. And other people sort of made the opposite argument that like cryptocurrencies are dependent on traditional markets. That's what the liquidity is, liquidity too. How, How do you see that? Yeah, it's a great question because I think the jury's still out. I'd say on average, most people would still argue that digital assets are more of a risk on investment and inflation hedge. But whether we officially call them the safe haven asset of choice is still to be seen. I mean, most recently over the last couple of months during this volatile time, we've seen phases where crypto as an asset class started to track gold very heavily. And so that would be sort of mirroring, you know, the safe haven and 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 when people are running away from equities, flocking into gold, seeing crypto trade a, a, akin to gold says, yes, it's considered a safe haven asset. But then we saw it break away from gold and start tracking equities more broadly, broad equity indexes. And then we even saw some correlation to EM and everything in between. And so there is no one asset class that uh, that crypto is trading similar enough to say, yes, if it was gold all the way, then we'd call maybe it is a safe haven asset. I think if you were to look within asset, the asset class of crypto, if any asset could be considered safe haven more reliably, I'd say that's Bitcoin. Just given its core utility has always been this concept of, you know, 
a store of value. And so it would be the natural beneficiary of that that core utility case. Bitcoin has still been the best performing asset so far year to date, up almost 40%, but gold is only up 13 and the S&P is down 13. So we've certainly seen a migration into crypto broadly and obviously with Bitcoin being the, the biggest beneficiary to date. Yeah, there's there's definitely a danger in trying to call these things too quickly, right? For sure. Both this, in the stock market and Bitcoin and what we saw in oil, what we've seen in gold. So is it too early to call the happening? Is it is it great that Bitcoin's fiscal policy is set in stone and nothing exciting happens? Or is it an exciting event because it's a halving of the supply? Or is it too early to call? What do you think? No, I don't. I mean, look, I think nobody has this crystal ball, right? But I, I do think it's a super exciting time. I love that there is transparency. Markets love transparency. And so that is what makes Bitcoin very attractive in many respects, because it's forecastable and people understand exactly what's going to happen and when it's going to happen. And I think markets love that sense of certainty. I think, you know, if you look at the past two happenings prior to the most recent one, we saw a rally into it, but also between the date of the halvening and then anywhere between 12 and 18 months after, we saw continued appreciation and then the eventual high. And so there's a lot of reason to be particularly optimistic about not just Bitcoin, but also other digital assets. In fact, I read an article this morning, I think some some analysis by Coinbase, which was noting their exchanges activity and, you know, in the recent post-COVID market. And they've seen that a lot of what would have been traditional Bitcoin-only investors who have been long believers in in crypto are really starting to bridge more into altcoins because they're sort of saying, we now see a much broader participation rate in crypto broadly and those new entrants are all going to be buying Bitcoin. Could there be a bit of a cementing effect that like if people are going to allocate their funds, let's say proportional to market cap, that means that like the the coins that are sort of higher up are going to get more investment. I guess there could be. A- Absolutely. You know, it's a great question. And I think, you know, if you look at a parallel to traditional markets, most people don't want to be invested in a single asset. Most people take a diversified investment strategy. And so I think Bitcoin is sort of the the initial adopter for most people who come into crypto. But then as they get more up to speed and understand different tokens have different use cases and different value propositions. Ethereum for smart contracts, XRP for cross-border payments, you have Bitcoin as the store of value, and it goes on and on. And as we see additional tokens that have differentiated but real fundamental use cases that make sense to everyday investors, I think we're going to continue to see the inclusion of additional tokens beyond just Bitcoin participating in in sort of like an alt basket type type investment strategy. So do you think it's somewhat paradoxical that these currencies have the sort of fixed, they have have sort of a fixed fiscal policy, like Bitcoin's, Bitcoin's production rate is pretty much set in stone, and yet their prices are so volatile. Is that sort of contradictory? Or is fiscal, is adapting fiscal policy key to stability? No, so it's a good question, because given how transparent Bitcoin works, and, you know, Satoshi's paper, and everyone has the access to look at every single uh, detail and how Bitcoin is going to be introduced. Nothing will change. It only will ever have 21 million, et cetera. You might think that the asset would trade with less volatility. However, I think there are a number of issues still that we as an industry have to address around legacy concerns about security or about the operational risks of trading in the asset class or regulatory uncertainty, et cetera. And I think all of those things are we're making a ton of progress on, but an 
until we remove a number of those significant hurdles, I think you will see slower adoption. I think as the adoption rates increase, we will see greater participation from traditional institutional investors. And I think as we do see new investors come in, the volatility will be reduced over time. It's interesting that you use the expression regulatory uncertainty and not just, let's say, regulation. Is the problem more that we don't know how the regulations apply to these novel applications? Is that more the problem that there are bad regulations that we just can't figure out how to comply with them? Yeah, it's another great question. I think it's twofold. I think, number one, a number of global jurisdictions have started in a positive way to take the lead around setting frameworks or guidelines, goalposts to operate within. And that's been extremely helpful. So I, I, I applaud those jurisdictions. However, there is no globally consistent approach to how to apply those regulations. And until we have, number one, more clarity, and number two, more consistency, we will continue to be confused as, a, as an industry. We, we need clarity from regulators. We need a consistent approach across the globe so that we don't run into a scenario where this incredible innovation that's being driven from a number of different parts of the world has certain jurisdictions that are driving out innovation. For example, if the U.S. isn't fast enough to develop constructive policy, you may see people who are strong innovators and leaders in the space decide to leave and set up their businesses in other jurisdictions that have been faster at setting up reasonable frameworks to operate in. So I think it's I think it's both. We need clear regulation that companies know how to interpret and understand that they can operate within. And then we need global consistency as well. I think you've identified another paradox, which is that we don't want to discourage jurisdictions from developing experimental regulations to try to improve things and see what works and what doesn't and how these things turn out. On the other hand, the fact that every jurisdiction has a different approach makes it very difficult to build these businesses that are fundamentally international. They're fundamentally borderless. Absolutely. You know, I think I'd say the best regulatory approach is probably going to be the one that avoids, you know, too much of too rules based and too proscriptive. I think we're going to need a lot of flexibility in the near term. And I think flexibility will be key to account for the differing products and also changing technologies. And look, any approach has to strike the balance between both promoting innovation, but also, of course, protecting the markets themselves and most importantly, the market participants. And so we want it might sound contradictory what I'm saying in the sense that, you know, I'm sort of saying we need clarity from them, but then we don't want it to be too prescriptive. But we're asking for both. And, and I realize it's a hard problem that the regulators have to solve. But we want increased clarity, but we don't want that clarity to be so prescriptive and specific that we, we stifle innovation. So what do you think about regulators in the U.S.? I think they've been pretty open to talking to industry players. I think we're having a hard time coming up with exactly what we want because it is not a simple problem. Do you, do you think the industry knows what it wants? Uh, you know, in general, I'd say U.S. regulators have been far more open about talking with industry players and vice versa. And, and to their credit, I think if we can keep these channels of communication open, that will be key to making progress as, as an industry. Do you think regulators need to recognize that these products are different and come up with a framework that, that covers the entire industry? 
That's a great question. I'd say we don't need to make rules for rules sake. So what I mean by that is where a digital asset can be compared to sort of existing financial instruments. So for example, commodities, we believe similar rules should apply. So there's no need to reinvent the wheel. However, where digital assets present unique characteristics or differing economic functions, those may warrant a, a different regulatory approach. And I think, you know, we're going to learn as we go, just as the regulators will, but establishing at least broad and flexible regulation and then refining it as we move forward without discouraging innovation is ultimately the most important, is, is the most, well, and again, importantly, protecting investors and, and protecting uh, the markets. Yeah, I, I've noticed that if you try to make these analogies, you say, well, like Bitcoin or XRP or Ethereum are a lot like corn. You know, it's something you buy, it's something you sell, it's something you hold, it has a value, but you don't transact with corn. Absolutely. In the case of XRP, we see it operating really as a bridge currency. XRP was really purpose built for payments. You know, the vision has been the same from the beginning and it was built to be faster, cheaper and more scalable, specifically because it's enabling the payments use case. And an example of where those intrinsic qualities have been really helpful is during the recent market volatility, you know, Black Thursday and subsequent days where traders wanted to actively trade the market and take advantage of arbitrage opportunities in between exchanges. Even we saw a ton of network congestion for Bitcoin and for Ethereum. And we saw that a lot of traders who historically were doing all of their trades denominated in BTC, ETH and other assets actually swapped into XRP as a preferred base currency for cross-asset exchanges, given those intrinsic qualities. When you think about there is $10 trillion locked in Nostro and Vostro accounts. And imagine the power of being able to free up all of that capital. And, you know, something we spoke about earlier, this concept of money moving the way that information does today by leveraging digital assets. That idea itself is incredibly inspiring and what gets me excited to come to work every day or at least come to my, my home computer in, in lockdown every day. <laughs> so do you see these things coming to institutions? Do you see them coming to people in countries that are underserved by the existing financial system? Is it going to bring everybody together? What do you think we're going to be seeing? So I'd say, I mean, you saw when you're talking about institutions, we've had a couple of big headlines in the last week or so. We saw Coinbase and Gemini got their accounts approved at J.P. Morgan Chase. We saw Paul Tudor Jones make a huge announcement that he, the headline first said 1%, but then he subsequently clarified closer to 2% of his assets in Bitcoin. And and by the way, it wasn't just in his personal PA, it was in his, in his fund. And so I think that's huge in terms of, you know, bringing crypto to the, the core institutional markets. And I think, you know, We've, we've seen a number, in addition, I think it was a, two months ago, maybe, Grayscale said 71% of its inflows in the last year, which was over 600 million, came from institutions like hedge funds. And that was up north of 60% from the prior year. So, you know, you've got financial analysts now recommending Bitcoin. The the head of equity strategies at, I think it was Jeffries, he said something like, you know, not only should they buy Bitcoin ahead of the halvening, but this is 
the reason why is that it's a it's a hedge against central bank manipulated fiat money. I mean, that is a significant statement. So I think we're really having a, a moment of signif- much more significant adoption in light of recent events. And so I absolutely think that institutions are coming in and this has been a really momentous, even, you know, the, the last month, you know, we're recording this in May. I think it, even in the last four to, to six weeks, and we've had a particularly momentous series of headlines that will drive institutional adoption. In terms of serving the underserved, absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of the the work that we're doing right now, you know, with our on-demand liquidity platform, which we call ODL, where we're working with companies like MoneyGram and other money transmitters, you know, where you have uh, a mom or a dad who's living in the U.S., but their family is, is back in Mexico and they're working here because they can make more money here, but they need to get their Mexican pesos back to their family to support them. And now that we're work, we're working with the enterprise, right? We're working with MoneyGram, right? But ultimately, if we're able to reduce MoneyGram's costs significantly, because instead of them having to send hundreds of millions of dollars to pre-fund accounts in Mexico, they can use ODL to send money cross-border instantaneously. They can reduce the fee, the fees for themselves and therefore pass on reduced fees to their customers so that we're making it easier for everyday consumers to get access to funds in a more efficient way without seeing, you know, the 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 system charge the highest fees to the people who can least afford it. I just want to clarify that ODL is using a digital asset to basically purchase the Mexican pesos to be delivered to the recipient of the remittance. So let's go as far away from remittances as we could possibly go to the ultimate institutional adoption. I'm sure you've been hearing about central bank digital currencies. Is this just another name for the same digital fiat that we have now? Or are central banks really thinking about transacting on decentralized ledgers? Or or, or how do you think about it? Yeah, look, I think the growth in stable coins and CBDCs, which are central bank digital currencies, I think overall it reflects the recognition that our current payment rails really need to be improved. Certainly, I don't think anyway, we'll live in a world where we have no fiat, uh, but there are certain things that are fundamentally broken in our in our current system that can obviously, very obviously be improved on. CBDCs, I think, represent interesting opportunities. And I would say as a company, and me personally, I, would, I applaud central banks for pursuing this. That said, I think we're still in sort of the research stage and there's so many unanswered questions. I mean, some of them top of mind include, you know, how how does central banks think about CBDC liquidity? And then how do you connect countries that don't have CBDCs? You know, how are they going to transact between CBDCs? This could potentially present an interesting opportunity to Ripple in that there's software products like RippleNet and bridge currencies like XRP that may have a very important role to play here in terms of enabling some of that much needed interoperability between countries. But this is something I would say we're obviously monitoring closely and we're staying involved in the conversation. But, you know, I guess just to take a step back to think that in just a year, we have nearly every country on earth thinking about blockchain and thinking about how it can improve their fiat currency. This is huge. So I'm excited, but I think it's super early days. 
Well, just a couple of years ago, no bank or financial institution would have touched a digital currency. And then we got to the point where every financial institution or bank felt they sort of had to have some sort of a digital currency strategy, at, at least. Where, where do you think they are now? Yeah, I mean, I go back to that, like JP. I mean, think about what was Jamie Dimon saying? I don't remember exactly when, but he was very publicly like, this is a load of, you know what? And <laughs> and and then fast forward and the first bank to actually bank two of the largest crypto companies, that is a huge step in the right direction. And then, you know, I spent a bit of time at Goldman, a long time at Goldman before I came here. And, you know, so I stayed in touch with some of my former colleagues there. And they have been taking, you know, over the last couple of years, an approach of let's a, a little bit wait and see, but we don't want to miss the boat either. Let's put capital to work by investing in promising companies so we can at a minimum participate in the equity appreciation of these companies. And then let's watch as some of the regulatory hurdles come down and think about moving towards potentially, you know, trading and storing these assets as well. Nobody wants to, to miss the boat completely. But I think depending upon the bank you're talking about and the traditional financial services provider, they're taking differing approaches to getting some sort of exposure to this phenomenon of crypto adoption. I think JP Morgan seems to be leading the pack so far from the traditional players. So I think the thing that used to be slowing them down is the fear that this whole thing was just like a giant scam. I think that's pretty much gone. Yes. No, I agree. That's gone. You know, there are, I will say, both on the on the positive and negative side of crypto, it is easy to set up an exchange in some ways. If you, you know, you could, you could do something very similar and call it an exchange and, you know, create some sort of compelling website. But I think now that we've been in this for a while, there are clear winners. There are clear players who are doing things right, following the rules and have, you know, gathered significant assets under management that have, you know, legitimate exchanges that have robust KYC processes, etc. And so I think people are now able to kind of separate sort of the noise and realize that there are a, a number of really impressive institutional quality uh, players in the space and, and traditional financial investors are now getting increasingly comfortable crossing over into this into this asset class as a result. So why aren't we seeing more progress? Is it regulatory uncertainty? Is it primitive ecosystem, immature tools? Is it the technologies missing? Is, is, are those all the same thing? Yeah, it's a good question. And I, I ask myself that a lot. I think it's primarily the security issue still is something that that troubles people. I mean, it was partly because, you know, there was some legacy exchange hacks that that really spooked people, partly because okay, I, I realize as I do my homework, I can take my assets offline and I can store them securely. But this then entails hardware. I mean, for some traditional financial investors, they're like, I need to hold something on a device in my drawer. This is very foreign for people. And so I think, you know, the security thing is one. I think a consolidated place to both trade, get leverage, get uh, consistent reporting, get consistent valuation, et cetera, is another missing. And that might be a robust sort of prime broker offering that could be the next big, I think, in institutional quality infrastructure that the that that the ecosystem needs before we see wide scale adoption. But, um, you know, as I said, in the last couple of weeks alone, I think, you know, headlines from, you know, Paul Tudor Jones, you know, a few months ago, Grayscale announcing their significant assets under management um, core institutional investors. I think things like JP Morgan, you know, banking, Coinbase and Gemini, all those things show that I think the tides are really turning. And I I, I see, you know, 2021 and, and the second half of this year as being big it's times for big waves of adoption, especially if this if this unfortunate COVID situation continues to linger and you see global governments pumping unlimited stimulus into the economy. 
Do you think digital assets or, or even more broadly distributed ledger technologies like blockchain, those innovations, do you think that those will have an effect on more traditional markets or equities, derivatives? Do you think that the industry is going, those industries are going to be driven to some kind of change? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think it's interesting. I was in Switzerland seeing a client like a year ago, and I felt through a number of conversations there that they were a bit further along and, and, and not only on the, on the concept of STOs or security token offerings. And their views were very much that traditional finance was going to kind of come into this space, this blockchain space, first through tokenization of traditional securities and then get into crypto. And it was interesting to see that view that maybe STOs is the way that you see wider institutional adoption of blockchain tech and then sort of migration to crypto. And I think either way, this is a really big deal because when you think about it, most of the world's assets are extremely illiquid and highly inefficient to trade. Uh, real estate as an example, tokenization can solve that. I mean, when you think about the size of the real estate market, it's worth I don't know, $230 trillion. And so if you think about, you know, the ability for that market to trade in, you know, in fractions, uh, that opens up accessibility to all sorts of investors who previously may not have been able to trade in that asset class. So might we see that that uh, tokenize everything future where I can, from a single platform, invest in virtually any sort of asset on the planet? I think so. I really do. I think over time, I don't think that's tomorrow. I think it's, you know, we've got a lot of work to do, but I absolutely do see a future where everything is tokenized. Well, we're just about out of time. So I'll ask you one last question. Where do you think the industry is heading like in the shorter term, the next couple of years? What kind of innovations do you think we're going to see? In the next couple of years, we're going to see significant developments in securities tokenization. I think we're going to see uh, investors that were previously sort of Bitcoin only maximalists uh, expand into other alt coins as we develop increased utility and use cases uh, for digital assets broadly. And I think as those utility cases grow, you're going to start to see a much higher rate of institutional investors crossing over, you know, macro hedge funds, including some allocation to crypto as an asset class as sort of a rule of thumb, not the exception. And I think we're going to start to see some, you know, on the regulatory side, I think we're going to start to see some leadership globally to develop a more consistent framework so that there is, I think now, at least an acknowledgement that we are going to be heading that way. There will be digital assets. There will be some form of digital assets for central banks. What that looks like and how it shakes out to be determined. But I think we're now at a point where there's critical critical mass acknowledgement that we're moving in that direction and global regulators are ready to come together and, and help establish that framework. Thank you, Brianne, for joining me and talking about institutional adoption of cryptocurrencies. My pleasure. Always fun to speak with you, David. Thanks for having me. And it was a pleasure for me hosting you on Ripple's podcast, Blockstars. And listeners, thank you for tuning in. If you have any questions about this episode or any feedback for new episodes, please reach out to me on Twitter at Joel Katz, J-O-E-L-K-A-T-Z, or to the Ripple team on Twitter at Ripple. See you around the blockchain. Blockchain.